Hello and welcome to London Calling EU, the European delegation to the UK's monthly podcast. My name is Benedict Pavio. I'm the UK correspondent for France 24. At the beginning of December, I had the pleasure of moderating the annual European Citizens Gathering in London. It brought together around 200 people representing civil society organizations, EU embassies, the FCDO, the academic community and members of the House of Commons, House of Lords and the European Parliament. It was a packed day with panel discussions and workshops. We heard from a range of distinguished speakers. We can't bring you everything the day covered in one episode, so we brought together some of the contributions made. From Pedro Serrano, the EU ambassador to the UK, Maros Shevkovich, executive vice president at the European Commission, and Lord Ricketts, chair of the House of Lords European Affairs Committee. As we approach the end of the year, I am proud to look back at the intense cooperation between the European Union and the United Kingdom in 2023, especially after the agreement on the Windsor framework. In the midst of international challenges and uncertainties, both sides have signaled a resounding commitment to working together, a testament to the power of cooperation and diplomacy. The withdrawal agreement has to work for everybody, both in the UK and in the European Union. And without any exceptions, every single citizen matters. This is why we will continue to focus on resolving all remaining challenges, be it in relations to the UK legislation and guidance document, glitches in the UK's uh, digital status, or remaining issues raised in the EU member states. We enormously welcome the vibrant, creative contribution of EU citizens to life in the UK. And we are very focused in the House of Lords on ensuring that the remaining problems in this huge settlement process are dealt with as fairly and as quickly as possible. For the main thrust of the day's message, the opening panel discussion gives a very good overview, featuring Hilary Benn MP, Nathalie Loiseau, MEP, Lord Hannay and Svetelina Penkova, MEP. The panel really got to the core of just how EU citizens, together of course with British citizens, can help shape future EU-UK relations. Let's take a listen. I began by asking Hilary Benn, how can EU citizens best ensure they have an impact on EU-UK relations? You have a voice. Use it. Use the voice that you have got towards your elected representatives here in the UK, where so many of you have made your home, but also in the country from which you come in the rest of Europe. Because, look, I very much regret what happened seven years ago, but that is the past. And the question that we have to address now is, what is our future relationship going to be as citizens and those who've come to make their lives here in the UK working together? And there's a number of issues, and Natalie, you highlighted some of those, where we need to sort them out including the really important court ruling on pre-settled status, which Peter referred to, the school visits, the question of tourists coming into Northern Ireland, my current area of responsibility, and the government's wish that they apply for an electronic authorization because they want to go to the Giants Causeway for a day. <laughs> and the tourism industry in Northern Ireland is very worried that it will dissuade people. 
But the big question is this. What is our future relationship with the EU as the UK going to be? It's a different question to the one that was asked seven years ago. And what is really striking to me is that when Russia invaded Ukraine, what happened? Countries, whether they were in the European Union or not in the European Union, got together and said, crumbs, what are we going to do about this? In other words, the necessity for international cooperation to deal with the great problems that we face in the world is just as strong today as it was prior to June 2016. That's the first question. Secondly, reflecting on my current responsibility, including the impact on EU citizens living in Northern Ireland, this is where that relationship is being played out because it was always going to be a problem if the British people voted to leave because we have an open border between Northern Ireland and the Republic. And about the only thing everybody agreed on during Brexit, there was one other thing, that EU citizens here in Britain should have the right to stay. I chaired the Brexit Select Committee for a number of years. It was the only report we produced by unanimity when we said we need a scheme that enables all of those citizens who've come from Europe made Britain their home to be able to continue to do that. But in Northern Ireland, there was always going to be a problem. And currently, the people of Northern Ireland have no government, no government at all, because the institutions have been collapsed by the DUP currently. Previously, it was Sinn Féin who collapsed them. And here we are 25 years on from the Good Friday Agreement, that extraordinary moment in Irish history. And we have to find a way of getting the institutions back up and running so that government in Northern Ireland, as government in England, Scotland and Wales, can work on behalf of citizens. And the Northern Ireland Protocol was a way of trying to deal with that question, how do you keep the border open? and the Windsor Framework, and I praise the Commission, and Maris Sefcovic in particular, for recognizing that Northern Ireland is different. And the EU could not just apply the standard third country rules to the situation in Northern Ireland. And uh, I voted for uh, the Windsor Framework. And in, in a way, that is a, a test bed for the kind of negotiations I hope we're going to have between the United Kingdom and the European Union over the years ahead. If there is a change of government in the United Kingdom, we will probably have an election uh, uh, next year. We, we have said we want, for example, to negotiate an agreement on uh, veterinary and phytosanitary standards, which would help trade across the Irish Sea, and by the way, trade across the Channel. Because the realization I think that we've come to for people providing services, industries that many of you will work in, and also goods, is although Britain has sadly left the European Union, the channel has not widened. We are still friends, we are still neighbors, we face similar challenges, and we need to find a new way of working together. But for that to happen, the impact of Brexit politics needs to drain from the British political system, and if I may say so, it needs to drain from the European Union as well, so that we are able to clear our minds and to say, right, what is the new relationship going to look like? And I look forward to a world in which all people who are here in the United Kingdom feel uh, welcome. Like everyone else, I, I value enormously the contribution you make. I see that in my own constituency in Leeds. Um, I do think that the settled status scheme has, broadly speaking, worked well. Uh, there are some problems. 
and there have been some problems in other EU countries. It's really important that we acknowledge that. I dealt with one case of a, a woman who was bedridden in a care home in Sweden, and the Swedish authorities said to her, you haven't got status, you've got to leave, which was outrageous. And credit to the commission, because the commission went to Sweden and said, what on earth are you doing? And in the end, they gave her leave to remain. Sadly, she has since died. So we must be vigilant. All of us must be vigilant to ensure that the rights of citizens, British citizens in the EU, EU citizens here in Britain, are fully protected and upheld so that everyone is able to participate in society. But talk to your politicians, talk to your local representatives, use the power and the voice you've got, and good luck. Thank you. And that begins today because that can happen here because there is this innovation, which we'll explain in just a moment, where each table is going to have uh, somebody that they have access to. That's never happened before. Now, I know that you are under pressure timetable-wise. If you do need to leave now, well, I can you're most welcome to stay. Can you stay minutes. as long as you can? So no discourtesies to my fellow panellists, but when I have to go, no, I have to go. No, we want to avoid that please. at all costs. No discourtesy today <laughs> at all. That is not, that would not be meant. So let me um, just quickly ask Nathalie Loiseau uh, a question. Um, interesting, you were just talking there, Hilary Ben, about vigilance. What can EU citizens in the UK contribute to shaping collaborative EU-UK uh, relations over the next year, two, three, or more, Nathalie? Well, um, I would like also to focus on uh, the opportunities that remain uh, for these relations. Uh, it's, of course, we talked about people-to-people -people relations, but for instance, the, the very good news that uh, the uh, UK uh, rejoins the program on research, Horizon Europe program, means that there's going to be uh, possibilities to work together on scientific projects, uh, and that will be open uh, to people living in the UK, uh, be them British or European, uh, that will be a new bridge. Well, it used to be a bridge, but we are rebuilding it again. Uh, we also need you uh, to um, uh, tell us uh, when you see that we diverge, because that's the, that's the principle of Brexit. And let us face it, we are already diverging. Uh, the EU is uh, passing new legislations. The UK is starting <coughs> to pass new legislations. And it's not going to be necessarily all the time smooth and easy. Uh, so we need you to tell us exactly um, what are good practices coming from the UK. Because uh, we are arrogant Europeans. We always think that the European Union knows better. And artificial intelligence, hopefully tonight, will be the first and the pristine legislation uh, globally. Uh, well, let's see, hopefully. Uh, and on many other topics, uh, we try to uh, be at the forefront of the big challenges. Uh, but very often, and more often now than before, uh, we don't see, we, we, we ignore, what's taking place here. And I think Europeans living uh, in the UK, uh, in a sense, you are our ambassadors, all of you. Uh, uh, and we need you to tell us, well, why don't you try this? 
Now trying it in the UK seems not bad, it seems working, it seems feasible. Because really my concern, as I live it, and I will see whether Svetolina shares it, is that more and more when we draft our EU legislations, very few of us are asking, what about the consequences for the UK? What's taking place right now in the UK? How will it fit? Will it work? Um, people working in the delegation for relations with the United Kingdom, of course, if we volunteered to be in this delegation, we bear this in mind. But how often do I have to raise my hand and raise my voice in my political group or in committees where I work to say, okay, what we are thinking of seems fine, but have we had a single conversation with the United Kingdom on this? We are doing it on Ukraine, and thankfully so, even if we don't even have a framework agreement on defense, well, we should have one, but, I mean, good practices are um, being implemented. But, you know, it only depends on goodwill and good people. And I'm here in this room, there are only good people and there is general goodwill. But we have to make sure that it remains this way. So we come back to the notion maybe of that you are ambassadors, that you are activists, that you need and can help to shape your future uh, by voicing your concerns, the divergences you see. So let me turn to Svetelina. Um, when you look at the very diverse backgrounds uh, and EU uh, interests of EU citizens in the UK, how indeed, picking up on Natalie's point, can the European Parliament uh, really ensure that their voices are heard equally? First of all, thank you. It's a great pleasure to be here. And I'm curious to see the discussions and the debates around the table. I just want to make a remark. Uh, your introduction of me was great, but I just want to reemphasize that I was studying, working, and living in the United Kingdom until 2019, which is uh, quite important. So I was here through the whole process, unfortunately, of the referendum, seeing the reaction of, uh, of everyone, uh, both uh, EU and uh, UK citizens, and it was quite painful. Mm -hmm. However, I would have to agree with what um, uh, Hillary said at the beginning. This is already in the past. Mm -hmm. So we cannot change it, we cannot go back in time, so let's move forward. And the question is like, where should be our focus? My generation grew up with the idea of United Europe. My country, Bulgaria, joined the EU uh, in 2007 when I was just finishing high school. And being Eastern European, this is a big thing for us. I, I remember the feeling like being part of this united Europe. So we have to be honest in this conversation. There is a whole generation, mine and probably a bit younger than me already, who is never going to forgive Brexit. We have to be honest about that. And I'm speaking about the generation on both sides of the channel. I'm speaking about the young people in the UK and the young people in the EU. They would never, will never forgive Brexit because this destroyed our value system for a bit. It questioned it. So this is the honest remark we need to make when we're having that conversation. And here comes to your question. So I think we have to focus our efforts on that exact generation on the young people. And uh, Natalie already mentioned one thing. The UK is back in Horizon, which is great, great achievement. This is for research, for innovation, for science. This is for the young people. So yes, we are doing a step in that direction. But now we have to also put a bit more effort on the, not only on the school visit, but also in the 
long-term perspective, like, can we rethink a way to reassess the Erasmus, um, the, the Erasmus opportunities? Because there are people from, from both sides who are lacking. This is an exchange of knowledge. This is an exchange of values. So we cannot take this away from the young people. This is an opportunity they deserve. And we have to focus our efforts on that because we cannot compensate for everything that happened. But we, we need to be giving up a bit pieces and bits in terms of the political debate on that aspect, because this is for the better, uh, for the better future, for the better exchange of, of knowledge and collaboration going forward. And um, yes, I do agree. The UK, um, and Natalie pointed out on that as well, we do miss it out sometimes from the conversations when we're speaking about specific EU legislations. We do try to bring it up. The UK is definitely not a normal uh, third country to the EU. Like there is a different, um, there's different relationship, different cooperation. We all now know that and the partnership should be uh, re-emphasized. However, let us not be considered as overseas students by the UK as well. Because this is a double way street. Um, sorry, it's a two-way street. I'm getting a bit emotional. Like, we have to make sure that the EU students here are treated also as the home students. Because at the moment, yesterday I was at UCL, and like, it was very painful to hear that um, some of the, um, it was uh, European and, um, and UK students, of course, um, and they were sharing that a lot of their friends or um, like um, acquaintances back home, they cannot afford to study in the UK anymore. Mm -hmm. It's not that they don't want to, but they cannot afford it. The tuition fees are unaffordable. Uh, the, they don't have access to the student loans, nor in their home countries, nor in the UK. I was also surprised to hear that. So it's a two-way street. And uh, the good thing is that we're here and we're having that conversation. So we've accepted that we cannot change bre Brexit. We can regret about it, but we have to move forward and look forward. And I, I genuinely think our first priority focus should be on the young people. Because, as I said, they would not forgive it. But we can at least try to create conditions so the shared values and, and the cooperation is still understood and embraced in their way of thinking. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for being their voice. I reported on the pain. I was in Downing Street uh, before and on the day and in the days that succeeded. Um, I know the pain. I've seen the pain. I hear the pain. But as we know, we have to move forward. And I find it very interesting in the English language, particularly as somebody who's bilingual, bicultural, reporting around the world, when many people in the United Kingdom talk about going to Europe. No, you're not going to Europe. You're going to continental Europe. And if everybody in this room could in the future, when you hear somebody saying that they're going to Europe, say, excuse me, you are in Europe. You're going to continental Europe. Um, you, you're not in the EU, but you are in Europe. And this is where this overlap is really important to recognize that and to 
own it. So thank you very much for that insight. Um, Lord Hanley, talking, um, turning to you, what do you think is the role of EU citizens in helping shape this future, uh, as well as British citizens in the UK? Well, I think the first thing to say is that you should make as full use as you can of the activities of the independent monitoring authority, which is set up uh, to handle uh, complaints or worries of EU citizens here uh, in the way that our legislation is impacting on you. And this is not an empty invitation because the IMA actually took the government to court mm. Uh, on an aspect of the policy that the IMA believed was illegal under the withdrawal agreement, and it was, and they won the case. And they won the case so comprehensively uh, in the court that, in my experience, the governments tend to appeal two or three times going up the ladder to the Supreme they Court. Do. But they threw in the tile straight away yep. and yep. said, okay, we're not going to continue with the scheme as it was. Now, it then took them nine months to produce uh, a very complex um, document about how they were going to go ahead, as they said, in conformity with the court's ruling. Uh, I think the IMA is still looking at that. The committee I sit on is still looking at that too, and we're not totally convinced that the government is yet in conformity with the withdrawal agreement. But so I would encourage you to make the fullest possible use of the IMA. It is what it is called. It is independent and it monitors and it has some authority because it has access to the courts. So that's the most important thing I think to say to you. But there's a, a lot more that can be done, of course, to improve that post-Brexit relationship between us and the rest of Europe, which I totally share Benedict's view. Uh, I always refer to it as the rest of Europe. And uh, I think that both geographically and historically, and I was a student of history, I'm right. But um, that won't stop people talking about going to Europe. It's just wrong. Uh, anyway, uh, the other things we've, we've identified are many of the ones that other panelists have spoken about, the improvement uh, in school visits, in performing artists being able to move around the European Union, uh, in uh, possibly seeing if we could link up our touring uh, scheme with the Erasmus scheme so that we could uh, go back to the, that state of affairs. Uh, and also, uh, very importantly, I think moving ahead to create a strategic framework for cooperation on foreign policy, security and defense, which the uh, Russian invasion of Ukraine has demonstrated is really important, whether you're talking about sanctions or whether you're talking about the reconstruction of Ukraine or whether you're talking about the future security of Europe in the wider sense, Europe including Britain course, a member of NATO. So all these are issues which will be very much to the fore in the next year or two. If we have a change of government, they will certainly be one of the issues which will bulk quite large. And I think you should make your views known uh, on that. 
because I, uh, uh, the sort of ideas that the committee I sit on have put forward at the end of April, which is a long agenda of ideas for improving the relationship, they're still there, waiting to be done. Just one or two of them have been done. The Horizon program was one. Uh, but a lot is still out there and waiting to be done. And I hope you will encourage the committee to continue its work because uh, I would add that we, as a committee, we have all political parties on it and also, like myself, people who have no political party. We have people on the committee who voted to leave and we have people on the committee who voted to remain. Uh, but that doesn't stop us and it shouldn't stop you from uh, focusing really sharply in a laser-like way on the areas where ordinary people's lives could be improved by strengthening that relationship, which, let's face it, the withdrawal agreement does not do justice to. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Now, we're running a little bit behind time, but I would like to just take two questions from the floor. Uh, thank you so much. My name is Theo Benny. I'm a local councillor on Brand Council, and also I have my own organisation called Social Equity Centre, where we're hoping to make communities more visible in policy making. Um, I have a question for Hilary, and also maybe for Svetlina as well. Uh, we're speaking about, you know, young people are not going to forget, you know, what happened to Brexit. There's a lot of sets of elections in other countries next year. And I would like to be interested to know what is the EU doing to counter the far-right rhetoric that is happening all across Europe. Because, you know, in my uh, home country, in Romania, we have a far-right party at the moment. And obviously we have, you know, what's been happening in the Netherlands recently. And, you know, as much as we want to move forward from Brexit, there might be other European countries in a very similar situation soon. Sarah, thank you very much. Uh, for your question. This is a problem in lots of European countries, as you've just alluded to. You look at election results. And when people say to me on the doorstep, uh, well, I don't like immigrants, I look at them and I say, what have you got against my mother? I am the son of an immigrant. My mother was an American. She traveled across the Atlantic, having married my father and made the rest of her her life here. And it's really, really important that we stand up for basic human values. We're all different in lots of different ways, but we should value people for the contribution they make to our society, wherever they come from. And Britain has been hugely enriched by the contribution of those who have made Britain their home over the centuries. I have a large Irish community, for example, in Leeds. But current circumstances, economic difficulties, history teaches us. When was the last time we saw the rise of the far right in Europe it, out of the circumstances of the 1920s and the 1930s? So we have a responsibility as elected representatives to make sure that everybody is looked after in our society, especially in tough economic times. But it's so easy for people to come along and they've done it throughout history and say, are you having a hard time? It's the fault of that person over there. And we must be emphatic in saying that is not 
true, it's not right, it's not fair, and we must value everybody in our society. And I think that is the message we have to take, whether we're living in Britain or other European countries, as part of the elections. It's a bit difficult to add anything after Hillary because he's uh, answered uh, the question in an amazing way. Yesterday, that question came up a lot when I was speaking with the students in UCO. And to be honest, at least to me, that gives me hope. Because if the young people are questioning that, they understand it's not the right thing. And I, I truly believe that the young generation is the one who can drive the change or stop uh, from anything bad happening. But having said that, yes, history repeats itself. We have to be quite honest and analytical about the conditions and circumstances we're operating. So we've been speaking a lot about those topics um, in the European Parliament, also with upcoming elections, how to find misinformation, how to fight that populist uh, views. So the first thing is like, you cannot beat them in a debate because they are louder, uh, they use uh, false information, they use untrue facts. They're playing with the emotions and especially in a very difficult economic situation, they would give you the answers you want to hear, no matter that they're untrue. So um, fighting directly, it's definitely not the right approach. On the contrary, what we have to do, like um, all, the, all the political um, parties, no matter which family we're coming from in terms of like central right, central left liberals, we have to be very strong in the messaging of what we have achieved what we have done, because we've been in a very turbulent and dynamic times in Europe in the last four years. And with our policy working together, um, we have managed to achieve a lot. So let's focus on those key messages in terms of what we have done, why is it good, and not just imaginary promises, which are not going to be there. So when you are having, um, when you speak with your friends, when they go to vote, the advice you give them it would be, the advice I would give is like, Check the track record of the political organization you are choosing. Have they done something so far? And if they haven't, probably that's not the right direction for you to be going in terms of voting, because voting matters now. Next year, yesterday we were, um, someone mentioned that, I think at, at Westminster, when we're having our meetings, that next, next year it's about 70% of the world's population going to vote in the various shape or form. So the democracy is going to be really, really much the main topic of next year, and it's going to be tested. Indeed, as Svedilina said, 2024 is a crucial electoral year, and the panel set the tone for what was truly a meaningful day of discussion and exchanges. Throughout the remainder of the day, several organisations shared their vision of the future of EU Citizens Network in the UK. We heard from the New Europeans, the Sikorsky Polish Club, the Migrant Democracy Project and Black Europeans. Let's take a listen to what they said. So this is our source of power right here, power and strength. And we need to recognise and salute each other for the work we're doing. We're underpaid under-resourced, tired. <laughs> it's a nightmare out there. But we're fighting and we're working together. We need to collaborate, innovate, support each other. So just for this moment, look around the room, give each other a thumbs up, pat on the back, recognize the power and strength that we have today and all days. So 2026, we can do it. I'm Polish. I'm Scottish and I'm European. 
as we all are here, I hope, today. I was at the gathering here last year. I went away from the gathering with my head buzzing. My head was full of thoughts and ideas. What can we do in Glasgow? What can we do for the European citizens in Glasgow? We need to get organized. So we did. We've now got two organizations in Glasgow, European citizens. One's an informal organization. Half a dozen nationalities getting together to make sure we celebrate Europe Day next year. So there's going to be more nationalities join us, but we're going to have a proper celebration next year of European nationalities somewhere significant in Glasgow, and it's going to be a significant event. My vision is for everyone who lives here to have a say in political decisions affecting them. The reality, again, is that over 5 million plus EU citizens in the UK, unless dual nationals, have no right to vote in general elections and referendums, which we know is really important. In addition, over 1 million people in England and Northern Ireland have no right to vote at all, not even in local elections. Last year, when we had a gathering, I was the only, I might be wrong, but I believe I was the only black Europeans. This year, I see many of my brothers and sisters here. That's progress. I was sitting there. I was now on a podium. Today, I'm here. That's progress. We were able to achieve this progress because we have support from the EU delegation. The importance of the year ahead ran through all the day's interventions, and we just can't cover all the excellent contributions from our gathering. But I would like to highlight MP Stella Creasy's intervention on the importance of EU citizens to the UK. I am absolutely horrified that the majority of people now being stopped at our borders are EU citizens post-Brexit. What does it say about us as a country that we are generating a suspicion about people who want to come and part of our communities? I love living in a place I call God's own country. And I call it God's own country not just to wind up my colleagues from Yorkshire, but because Walthamstow has people from around the world in it. And we are stronger, richer, more interesting for it. So I think I first of all sit here and want to say I'm sorry. I'm sorry that British politics has let down European citizens to such an extent that you are now facing day-to-day -day problems just being who you are and travelling around in this country. That is on us as politicians to get right. But let me also sit here and pledge that because we respect and value the role of EU citizens in our country, many of us will not just challenge that culture and challenge that hostile environment, we will also seek to repair the damage that things like Brexit have done, the day-to-day -day problems that you are now facing. It was a pleasure to moderate such an interesting day. What a fruitful way to round off the year. To keep up to date on what the EU delegation to the UK is working on, please visit the delegation's social channels or visit Europe House in the heart of Westminster. But for now, goodbye and stay tuned for the next episode of London Calling EU.